Now, you probably recall from the last few weeks that this prayer appears to us in two separate parts of the New Testament. We read about it in Luke's gospel. We hear the disciples just ask Jesus how they can learn to pray. And, and Jesus responds by saying, when you pray, say this. So here are words that you can pray verbatim. And so as our study is predicated uh, on the command of Jesus, that when we pray, this is the things that we're going to pray. And as Christians here in the 21st century, and as members of this local congregation that we call Maranatha Baptist, when we come to God in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, these are the words that I hope that we as a congregation learn to pray well, the Lord's Prayer. But this prayer also occurs to us in in the passage we just read in Matthew's Gospel, and that comes to us right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if we were to distinguish between the prayer in Luke and Matthew, they're slightly different in their phrasing, or the core content, same message is there. We might say that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells us to say this, while in Matthew's Gospel, this comes to us in the middle of a sermon where Jesus is saying, live like this. So not only are we to, to, to say these things, but we're to be affected by them. We're to live uh, according to them. And, you know, it is on the Sermon on the Mount that reminds us so much of that episode in the Old Testament where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and speaks with God and comes down with this, these, these set of laws, this way, this constitution of being and living for the Israelites. But here, the Lord cuts out the middleman. You know, a lot of people say, well, Jesus is like the new Moses in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And that's true, but more to the point, Jesus is like Yahweh speaking directly to the people. See, in the Old Testament, it's just God speaking to his prophet and the prophet speaking to the people, but now it's just God speaking to the people themselves. And this is what the kingdom of God is going to look like. He's revealing what life under his rulership will be. And it's expressed through the body of Christ in this world. And so far in our study, we've seen that at the center of our life, at the center of our being as believers, is the person and work of God. But not just any God. This is the God who was and is and is to come. He is the immortal, the invisible, the God only wise, and light and accessible, hid from our eyes, as the old hymn tells us. This God is eternal, he's transcendent, he's holy, he's totally beyond our understanding as finite creatures limited by space and time and matter. And yet, although this God is that, he is also the God who reveals himself to us, the God who names himself, I am who I am, which is to say that God will be what he will be without any of our limitations placed on him. So this God reveals himself to us first and foremost as Father. Now that is a term of of relationship, as you know. But who is this Father? Who is he Father to exactly? Well, we talked about that in in the, the first Sunday study together. He is Father to the only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. And from there... Fellowship precedes another, the Holy Spirit. And so we have in this one God, three persons, and yet one unity, one triunity. 
And that's the mystery of who God is. But that is the God that we're praying to this evening. And this God comes near to us despite his transcendence, specifically in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God made flesh, a real human being like us, yet without any of our compromising sin. Jesus then invites us to share in his special relationship with the Father. See, Jesus gets to call God Father because he's the eternally begotten Son. But now through faith in Christ, being united to him, then we too get to call God Father. Now, remember, God is not like an earthly father, a father who's mortal and imperfect. He's an all-good and gracious and glorious Father, our God who is in heaven. So he's something totally unlike our category of fatherhood. But this is the God that we're praying to. This is the God we invoke when we say, our Father who art in heaven. And last week we asked him our first petition, that his name be hallowed, that is set apart or made holy. Now remember, we're not asking for God to become something that he's not. When we say, hallowed be your name, we're not saying that uh, he's, he's got to make his name holy or revered in and of himself because God is unchangeable. He's unflappable. We're not asking for him to change. Rather, we are asking that we would experience him as he truly is, that God would be God to us. And then as Haddon Robinson so memorably said, that we wouldn't try to whittle him down to size but that he would simply be God to us in all of his holiness and power and and beauty. And that we would know and respond to him by his hallowed name, that we would trust and obey him. So that was our first petition, and that's the God we're praying to. But now we get to the point where we ask another petition, and we ask, thy kingdom come. So what does that mean, thy kingdom come? Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of the word kingdom, maybe this is just because I'm a born and bred American. Uh, when I think of the word kingdom, I think of a, a place, and I think of a kind of a rather ancient one as well. When I think of kingdom, I tend to think of castles and crowns, nobles and knights. If I'm being honest, when I think of a kingdom, I, I, my brain goes to King Arthur, and his round table, and all, the, all the, the, the stories surrounding this legendary figure, the sword and the stone, um, his high court wizard, uh, uh, Merlin, a medieval England. That's what I think of when I think of the word kingdom. Now, the idea of kingdom, uh, I imagine, seems kind of foreign to us because we've never grown up. I'm looking around to see if there's any exception. No, none of us grew up in, uh, in a kingdom of any sort. And so it seems like an image that is reserved for a remote past to us. But if we can finally kind of shake off the more, uh, you know, fantasy novel understanding of the word kingdom, and we can get more grounded, when we think of kingdom, we think of it maybe primarily as a, a place, a place where a king or a queen, some kind of monarch is in charge of a certain group of people. And this place has boundaries, it's got borders, it's got customs and traditions, it's got a set geography. And typically speaking, that's how we think of kingdoms throughout history. That's what a kingdom is. 
But when the evangelists, meaning the authors of the Gospels, when they talk about God's kingdom, it's a decidedly different way that they speak of kingdoms. They don't speak of all the sort of, you know, behind closed door politics, all the, the military power plays. They don't talk about the extravagant banquets and, and, and parades. That's not what they talk about when they talk about God's kingdom. For instance, consider how Mark wants to summarize the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. When we got started in Mark a few, uh, uh, a few years ago, this was, uh, this was kind of a thesis statement for Mark that helped us understand all of what we were going to read subsequently in the gospel. We read in Mark 1, 14 through 15, After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's what the gospel of Mark is all about. And here we get uh, some sense that God's kingdom is more than earthly kingdoms, just like God's fatherhood is more than earthly fatherhoods. It's something maybe analogous, but still very different. And the word choice that Mark and the other evangelists use to reflect this idea of basil, uh, this kingdom is a Greek word, basileia. It's a word that m- means rule or reign. And specifically, it has to do not with a place, um, but more with an activity. God's kingdom is not uh, just, again, brick and mortar. It's not land and soil. It's an activity through a certain kind of people. So how can God's kingdom come near? God's kingdom comes near wherever the gospel goes out, but that can be anywhere on the planet. So it's obviously not relegated to just physical geographic space because the idea of God's kingdom is that it's an activity that comes from this being. Because the king who rules and reigns has come near, so does his kingdom come near to people. And it's his activity for his people and through his people that brings the kingdom into full alignment with our world. See, Jesus has come proclaiming good news. And the good news is this, that we live in a world that is full of anarchy and chaos. It's full of instability and uncertainty. And this king over all people everywhere throughout all ages seemingly long absent from our world, as far as our perspective is, this king has returned. And he's announcing, Jesus is announcing to the people uh, a sort of re-coronation, a re-crowning, a taking back of the throne. But that asks the question, or, or, or begs the question rather, what kind of king will he be? What will his kingdom look like? So if we're able to step out of our modern 21st century evangelical understanding of, of, of Jesus and, and just hear that message afresh that his kingdom is drawing near, the kingdom of God is drawing near, we might wonder what that might feel like to hear to these people. This coronation or crowning of a new ruler is kind of a scary thing to a lot of people, I think. There's just so much uncertainty to be had any time a new ruler comes to power. Will they be a good king? In other words, will they help 
society and everybody in it to, to, to flourish and live in a just and ordered way. Or maybe, probably more often throughout history, maybe there'll be a bad king, maybe just incompetent at best and a total despot at worst. Now, here in the States, every four to eight years, half of our country dreads Inauguration Day because it means a new ruler is stepping into power. And, uh, and they're beginning a, a new kind of administration from their predecessor, perhaps. And so at least 120 million of us think that won't be good for the country. But I suspect that the, the, the kind of dread that we may have on Inauguration Day pales in comparison when we think of our brothers and sisters in the world today that live in places like Iran or Ethiopia, Russia or North Korea that could tell us a thing or two about what it feels like when a new king comes to power. The consequences of bad leadership and the fear it invokes in people. You know, almost as a, a tangentially related, I had a friend text me yesterday and tell me that he was who lives out in Texas that he was going to a special screening of The Godfather, which has been out for fifty years now. And uh, it's a terrific movie, but we were talking about it a little bit, and it reminds me of this scene in The Godfather. Have most people seen it here? I feel like it's such a classic that everybody's seen at least a little bit of it. Everyone knows the Marlon Brando performance. But anyways, there's, uh, there's a really striking scene in that movie. And it's towards the end. It's when uh, the character Michael Corleone is his name, played by Al Pacino. He was this up-and-coming, you know, smart uh, kid that I th- he think he had gone to college, maybe was in, had some military service, and wanted to distance himself from his family. And he knew they were mixed up in organized crime, and he wasn't interested in that. But some things happen. His father's not well, and he finds himself an unwilling participant and this in his father's kind of mafia reign. But as the movie goes on, it's clear that he begins more he becomes more and more comfortable in that role. In fact, he kind of exceeds his father in some way. And so he's uh, towards the end of the movie, we see him after he's taken the reins and is is going to be the new don of the family. He's standing solemnly in a Catholic church. And I think his son is being baptized. And the priest asked him a series of questions, like if he will renounce Satan and all of his works and all of his deeds. And interspersed between him saying yes, it cuts to shots of his men carrying out these assassinations and hits on rival gang leaders. And the message is clear. While he's saying he's rejecting Satan and all of his works, he's living out the most satanic way to live, taking power by, uh, by, or, 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 or taking power away from these other families and consolidating it all under his family through this really terrifying and violent way. He's going to be the new uh, supreme mafia boss of New York City now. He's the new kingpin, and it, the message is clear. He will kill anybody that gets in his way, anybody, and he'll get away with it too. And the movie ends with his own family, his wife, looking at him, and horror, realizing he's become not only like his father, but worse than his father ever was. Fear, we can see, is starting to pierce her heart. 
And while that's a fictional story, I I couldn't help but be reminded thinking about this, uh, of how much our world experiences the power of kings just in that way. When a new power rises, when a new king comes to the throne, that's the kind of reign they often usher in throughout history. I mean, you look all over the world, every country, every time period, that story is as old as humanity itself. That's how kingdoms function in this world, through corruption and violence and cruelty and extortion and slavery. And perhaps New Testament scholar Wes Hill comments, this is the same worry and alarm that might have been kind of brewing in the guts of the Jewish people as they're listening to Jesus talk about a new king. Because, remember, they are a people that have just been under just some terrible rules and reigns throughout history. And perhaps the the sinners and sufferers in the crowd that he was ministering to are fearful that if God is going to be king like he's preaching, maybe they think that God is going to be so holy and just, so perfect and powerful and unobtainable that he will demand of them through his kingship things that they could never... uh, live up to. Maybe they were fearful that God would be the most severe king they've had yet. And maybe they're thinking and reminded of how the prophet Samuel uh, gave a sobering warning about kingship to Israel. You remember, Israel said they wanted a king so they can be like the other nations. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king. You'll see how that works out, by the way. And Samuel, in, uh, and I think it's in chapter 8 of uh, his first uh, of his first scroll there, he says this in verse 11, talking about King Saul, giving a prophecy about what the people can expect under a king, under the king that they wanted. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons and he'll make them serve with his chariots and horses. They'll run in front of his chariots like animals. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he'll take your daughters too, Israelites, to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he'll take the best of your field and vineyards and olives groves and give them to his attendants. And he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male servants and your female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he'll use for his own. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from that king that you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's the kind of king... That, that Israel has seen. That's the kind of kings that the whole world has seen. Remember that when Jesus is preaching to this crowd, they have experienced merciless, unfair, and violent regimes for the past, gosh, I don't know, five, six hundred years at this point. Remember, first the Jews had to deal with the Assyrian Empire. And right when they thought they'd get relief from that, here comes the Babylonians. And they're all in exile now. Well, maybe they can go back. Oh, no, the Persians take them even further east. And finally, the Persians say, okay, you can go back in your homeland. And 
It's Alexander the Great and the Greeks knocking on the door and persecuting and dominating them. And just when the Greek empire is split up and separating, then the Romans come in. They haven't had a king of their own in centuries. And each one they have is brutal and cruel to them. That's the kind of people that Jesus is preaching to. But with Jesus, when he preaches about a kingdom, it's an entirely new and entirely different kind of kingdom that is coming to earth. Haddon Robinson notes that every biography, every opening chapter of a biography, shouldn't be about a person's birth, but about a person's death. I think that's kind of an interesting thought. Because everybody's born. There's nothing remarkable about that. But not everybody lives a remarkable life and has a remarkable end. And so when we read about a person, it's not because that they were born. We read about a person because of how they lived and how they died. To see what a person is about, we should see where life took them, where they chose to go in life. And he expands this further. If we want to know the story of human history, we need to know where it's going. And so, is it going to uh, the way the world thinks it is? You know, we kind of talked about that this morning. There's a, there's a general sort of secular fear that we could be annihilated at any moment by our own hand. And there's probably some wisdom in thinking that way. Because look at how we've governed ourselves in the 20th and 21st century. I mean, terribly. We just introduced more violence and and crime, and war, and disease, and and destruction. I mean, there's probably certainly merit in thinking pessimistically about our future. But what we seem to, to intuit as a society is that we're heading towards destruction and collapse. In fact, that's the best of what scientists think. Even if somehow we don't kill ourselves through war and genocide here, on the planet. If we don't do that and are able to live somehow, sort of the secular vision of what the future will look like is well, eventually we will run out of resources and the sun will implode and that'll be the end of humanity. That's where history is going towards death and nothingness. So is world history in the words of Shakespeare, is it a tale told by an idiot tale told by an idiot with sound and fury but signifying nothing? Is that what all of world history will be? Or is world history the, or the long arc of history, as MLK Jr. liked to say, bent towards something else? Is it bent towards a just and holy God who's also gracious and merciful and a loving God too? Or is it just bent towards utter chaos and, and destruction? This is kind of interesting, but have you ever noticed in Genesis when God is creating the world and he describes what he's done, it says that there was evening and morning, and that was the first, second, third day. It says evening and morning, not morning and evening. I wonder why this is. Well, I think it's because because before God, uh, before God is working, there is nothing for us. When we start, it's dark. When we look out at life without God, there's just nothingness for us. There's darkness and abyss. But when God enters the scene, so does light and so does life. We start in the evening, but when God comes onto the scene, then we find morning. And that light and life we read in the Gospel of John 
was Jesus Christ, the light and life of human beings, the Word made flesh. So God, even in the way he creates the world, doesn't go about it in patterns that we think he would. He's, it starts in darkness but ends in light. It starts in, it starts in disorder and ends in order. It starts in um, void and emptiness and ends filled and, and, and expanding and multiplying. See, the way that our human reigns and kingdoms go is not like the reign and kingdom of God. The reign of God is not about oppressing anybody. It's about freeing people. It's not about slavery, but liberation. It's not about coercion, but compassion. It's not about domination, but deliverance. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, preaching the kingdom of God, he shows what that kingdom is going to be like by his own activity, by casting off our burdens, by driving away our demons, by healing our sicknesses and restoring us to our belonging and resurrecting us to life by forgiving us of our sins. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. When he comes in power, it's to restore, not to destroy. And as Wes Hill summarizes, where you see people being delivered from oppression and healed from sickness, there you see God's reign in action. If you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, you look at the life of Jesus, his ministry. What did he do? What did he say? That is what the kingdom looks like. And so God's kingship is displayed where we see healing and reconciliation and restoration of what sin has warped and what death has disfigured in our world. And so when we cry out with this petition, thy kingdom come, it means that we are asking that God's reign would be more and more evident and tangible and visible in our world. We're saying, Father, let the places and people where sickness and evil still seem to be in power be usurped by your goodness and grace. That's what we were praying when we asked for thy kingdom to come. But the tragedy of that too is that implies if we're praying that God kingdom, if God's kingdom will come, that implies that it's not fully here quite yet. Not fully, anyways. It may be here in part, but not quite fully yet. In fact, in, in talking about what the kingdom of God is like, when Jesus is trying to explain it to his followers, he uses these agricultural metaphors to get the point across. So in Mark 4, for instance, he says, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil, it's the smallest of the seeds in the ground. Even from its inception, it looks like it's nothing. But when it is sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants. And it produces large branches so that even the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. See, not only does it provide food, but it provides shelter. But it starts small. It looks unimpressive. But as it grows, we can see the evidence of its blessing. Or he says, likewise, in Matthew 13, 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into uh, 50 pounds of flour until it was... until it was all leavened. In both cases, what we see, that God's kingdom, when it breaks into this world... um, 
is is not in ways that we easily notice. When you put leaven in dough, you don't notice until you bake it the, the, the influence and the presence of it. So nobody notices a tiny little mustard seed until it's planted and, and it grows into something enormous, offering food and shelter. Nobody notices a little leaven until it's heated up in the oven and, and it causes the bread to rise and, and, and spread and, and become something large and nourishing. And that's how God's kingdom is in this world. His activity in this world works that way. It comes in small, unassuming ways, but it produces earth-shattering effects. So think of what Jesus' own ministry looked like. Think of how his kingdom was instituted here on earth throughout the gospel story. So how did he arrive on earth? With fanfare, with tributes in a palace? No, he arrived in a musty cave with barn animals around him. And he wasn't surrounded by dignitaries or or foreign heads of state, but by pagan astrologers and illiterate shepherds. And he spent his young life, as a toddler especially, as, as a refugee from a jealous king that was murdering people. That's how kings functioned. And he grew up in a quiet, humble an obscure backwater town, patiently waiting for God to call him to work. He was using his hands to to be a carpenter, to be a builder, working with wood and stone in total anonymity for 30 years. Isn't that strange? Have you ever think do you ever think about that? We see Jesus when he's born, maybe when he's young, uh, uh, a baby, a little toddler, a brief moment when he's a young man in the temple. He's 12. And then all of a sudden he's 30 years old. All of his teenage years, all of his early adult years, we don't see any of that. But God saw fit to send him into the world to live a full human life that we don't see those episodes appear. He just was content to work in a normal way, like we're all called to, 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 to be good in his uh, family to love his 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 mother and adoptive father, to be good to his half siblings, to um, to be respectful in the synagogue, to love and cherish the people he was around, to build things for the world. That's how the kingdom of God came into this world. And then finally, after those thirty years were up, when it was uh, when he was able to be a priest. And a minister, there was a tradition and and uh, and 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 uh, um, law, I guess you could say, for the Israelites to where you wouldn't be a rabbi or a preacher or anything until you were at least thirty and had a little bit of life wisdom under your belt. So he waited in that time, and then he became this powerful preacher and prophet. He came praying and prophesying and healing and forgiving, and it wasn't to lords and ladies. It wasn't to nobles and scholars and rulers. Jesus was spending all of his time with ordinary people like us who were sick and lonely, who were broke and exhausted and sometimes even possessed, who were outcasts and sinners. Jesus came preaching and showing his kingdom to people like that. A surprising kingdom. It's a kingdom of mercy, not of merit. It's a kingdom of grace, not of greed. And to the outside world, to the powers that be, 
It looked like nothing to them. That's why the Sanhedrin of the Jews and the Senate of the Romans could so easily look at Jesus and just discard him. They're baffled by the Jews were outraged and jealous of, of Jesus' ministry, of how effective he was as a teacher, and, and the pagans and Romans were irritated by the, the problems he was causing. But both, both groups were baffled by him because he didn't come seeking power and esteem. He just came to love and to serve and to give, unlike anything we ever see from kings in this world. He came for the lowly and least and not the mighty. But by how he lived and suffered and ministered, and died, all without sin, only in holy love. He did all of this so that he did the most surprising thing a king has ever done. He was killed, he died, and yet he rose again. Truly, no king has ever done anything like that. And that's what the kingdom of God is. And now he invites us, ordinary people, to repent of the kingdoms that we follow after, to the the kingdoms that we set up in our hearts, to the kingdoms that we follow here on earth, to repent of all that stuff and believe the good news that now Jesus is the king who rules and reigns over this world. Even if the world can't understand his kind of rulership. So it's he that will build his church. And miraculously it's even through ordinary people like us and ordinary things that we do that he will usher in that kingdom but remember his kingdom is not about glitz and glamour it is a surprising kind of kingdom where former enemies can become reconciled friends it's a kind of kingdom where suffering and lonely people can find healing and fellowship. It's the kind of kingdom where scoundrels and sinners, whether they're liars or thieves or murderers or adulterers or anything else, can come to be loved and forgiven, to be at peace with God and one another. That's the kingdom that we ask come into this world. Not through extraordinary power, not through extraordinary means, but to ordinary people through the ordinary love that we're able to pass along through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's kingdom comes when we give to the needy. God's kingdom is is shown when we befriend the outcast, when we visit the prisoner or the widow, when we care for the orphan and the sickly, when we welcome the stranger or the immigrant, and when we put our spouses and children, our friends and our family before ourselves with the forgiveness which we've been forgiven. That's where we see God's kingdom come and is coming. I like how historians look at uh, World War II, and there's two really decisive dates in World War II, two turning points that they talk about. First was D-Day in 1944. That was a decisive turning point in the war. And then there was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, and that was 11 months later in 1945. But when historians discuss the end of World War II, perhaps the worst war that this world has ever seen, or will ever see, hopefully, When the Allies landed on French soil on D-Day, historians agree that's when the war was really won. That was when 
things were just had had turned to the side of the allies not the Axis powers. But the war didn't end until VE Day the next year. Later, not on French soil, but on German soil, where the Nazi regime unequivocally surrendered. Now, I, I say that to say this. In one sense, the, 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 kingdom, or, or, um, the kingdom has already come. The D-Day has already happened. But the VE Day is, is not yet here. Do we see the distinction there? There's an already to this kingdom of God, but there's also a not yet to it. So God, on our own spiritual D-Day, invaded our sin-stained shores. When Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, buried, and resurrected to life by the Spirit's power, that's when the war was won. That's when the kingdom really came. When Easter dawn, of, of the first Easter, that was when the war was won. But we're still, as Christians, praying and, and lying with the name of our church, Maranatha, come back, Lord Jesus. Cast out our sin and enter in, we sing during Christmas time. We pray that the Lord will come back and make all things new. That's the VE day, the VJ day, victory in Japan, victory in Jesus day. What about that? There you go. I just thought of that on the spot. Terrible, terrible joke. So as we stretch out and hope towards Easter Sunday, our own kind of spiritual D-Day, when we remember that God has already won the war, And we, with creation, groan, waiting for the adoption, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We pray for that kingdom that's already here and at work in the presence of Jesus and his his people by the power of the Spirit. We pray that that kingdom will finally and fully come. Karl Barth once said, we are waiting until Easter becomes, not just for us, but for the entire world, the great event. That's what we're waiting for. And so, Christians, it's to the Father in the name of Jesus and with the Spirit's power that we are bold to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.